Hello and welcome to the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast with me, Clive Barber, and my good mate, Noel Tom. For the days when you can't ride your bike, there's always the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. So have you ever done a podcast before? No. We've done a couple. Did you know that at the weekend we were the most popular motorcycle podcast in the UK? Is that a fact? That's quite cool, isn't it? That is very cool. How many motorcycle podcasts? No, I won't Well, yeah, the next question should be name another motorcycle (laughs) podcast. The one that is usually between us and first place is called Chasing the Racing. It's a road-based podcast. Actually, very, very good. Same approach as us. It's just chatting, taking the piss. It's all time. It was all very natural, all very good. So everybody should listen to that. How long? Yeah. How long has that one been going? Well, I think they actually started about the same time as us, but they've been far more uh, what's the, aggressive. Aggressive. Not, no, not aggressive. They've just done uh, professional. Re, yeah, professional and reliable. Regular. <laughs> a lot of more. So they're like on 150 episodes, whereas we're just approaching 40s. We've had massive sabbaticals from this as well, haven't we? Pretty much didn't do, bizarrely, didn't do any during lockdown because it was just like eight hours a day of teams. And the last thing I wanted to do in the evening, do more bloody teams. The good thing about it is it means that everybody in the world is now used to using this kind of technology. So it's it really Rather than us having to travel to people or vice versa, we can just do everything over Teams. So it's quite good, really. You guys have been going for, what, two or three years now on this? Is it? We started almost exactly four years ago. I mean, it's funny that the Teams thing, the whole, I heard a thing today on Radio 4. You often listen to Radio 4. I do. Kind of person. Yeah. And there was a thing about, out of all the things that have gone back to normal after COVID, people have actually embraced the whole working from home and especially the team meeting people didn't really like meetings it turns out certainly not mm. face-to-face meetings i much prefer this and it really levels things out it was a lady talking that saying that she you know she got much more she was listened to far more online than she was in the boardroom in person that's really interesting, interesting yeah. isn't it it's interesting but it's not as interesting as motorbikes no. oh right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> motorbikes you say yeah <laughs> quite right is this the most popular teams meeting podcast in the uk <laughs> <laughs> uh, Probably is now, yeah. <laughs> no, we, we, I guess we should fess up that we know Dan and Ed. Well, I know them. They're friends of yours. How did, how did you meet Dan and Ed? They were introduced to me through a very important person in my life, which was Neil, Neil Gonzalez. And I met Neil in 2009 in the Pyrenees on a sort of a motorcycle event. And then Neil went off to do a little bit of travelling. Well, I always tell the story like this because I always sort of make out that Neil met Dan and Ed in Africa, but they actually met before that, I think, didn't you, in the preparation of going to Africa. But essentially, I met them all through this one. I've met so many amazing, great people, mainly these two, through (laughs) Neil Gonzalez. So that's how I know Dan and Ed. And then we started to have this sort of meet-up every few years, started off as like a camping thing down the fields and then progressed to the secret cabin in the woods. And then until they messed it up by going off and getting married and having children... We had a wonderful yeah. life together. Mm. Yeah, ruined it all. Sorry, sorry for ruining your life, Noel. Yeah. <laughs> well, you ruined your own as well, to be fair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was just also going to say, that it turns out now Dan and Ed are like the most solid characters that I know. And if I ever need, or if I know anyone who needs any kind of advice, they're my go-to people for solid advice on anything from relationships to how the microwave works to why my bike won't start. Yeah. They cover everything. Why are they on our podcast? Are you asking me? Yeah, yeah. Then I'm going to ask them. Because they have travelled. They're kind of like, they, they're the real deal. They've sort of travelled. They did write a blog about it, but they pretty much kept very quiet about it. And yet they have done, as far as I know, two amazing things. And that's what we're going to quiz them about tonight. Dan and Ed, tell us who you are and tell us the two amazing things, what you have done. I suppose like all good meeting intros. So I'm Ed and I'm from Buckinghamshire. Well, now, two amazing things. Well, I suppose the first one in in the motorbike sense of things is probably Africa. Yeah, it was the first trip. You never forget your first. (laughs) You did Africa. We did Africa. Yeah, Yeah. it's quite quite difficult to declare that you've done a continent. I'm not 100% (laughs) convinced we've done all of it, but we did do a big trip through Africa. So that's one. And that and that one, I I think actually we've maybe introduced these um, the wrong person because I th- I, th- I think the Africa trip was my baby, and then yep. the other one, the Siberia trip, this kind of Central Asia Siberia trip, was that one was Ed's baby, and they were they were very different trips. The approach taken was very different. I think it's safe to say we learned a lot from the from the first one. 
that then led to preparing for the second one. In a very <laughs> we ignored in the second. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Dan. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm now based in the Midlands. I spent a lot of time down on the south coast where I used to work. Prior to that, I'd been been at university over in Bristol, where Ed was too. And at the time. Ed was the Ed was the cool kid with the motorbike. He rocked up as a fresher at uni with a CBR 600, which is has quite a good look. Whereas I had a um, a Townsend mountain bike that had cost me 50 quid out of the Friday ad, so I wasn't really quite cutting it. I'd been kind of into motorbikes for, for donkey's years, but on a very kind of geeky level, I kind of, well, most things in my life are driven by my geekitude. And um, I'd been drawn to motorbikes by the engineering of them initially. By the time I met Ed, I'd never ridden one. I, you know, I've always liked the idea of them, but I, you know, I wasn't allowed to have one when I was at home. So it's only the freedom of being a being a, away from home as a student that enabled me to get my license. Ed was a big part of kind of influencing that. I think. Did your parents actually put your put their feet down to the extent that they said you're not having a motor? Uh, no, and I have to give my my parents great credit on that really so I think like all parents and I to an extent myself included my folks were definitely not keen for me to ride motorbikes however my dad had had a scooter in the 60s so they couldn't say that I couldn't have one but it was very much a case of well while you're living here we don't want you to have one and (laughs) I can get that growing up where I grew up just outside London roads were busy even back then in the 90s you know roads were busy you know I was young and a bloke therefore I'd have ridden it like a dickhead so it wouldn't have been a good look so actually making that get delayed until I was I didn't I didn't learn to ride until I was nearly 21. Yeah I wasn't that far ahead I started like just basically last year of school I think or just just after that so yeah I didn't have any bikes either growing up it just was never really a thing never really knew anyone who had them never really and then a mate at Robbie at school was just like do you know how fast bikes are and I was like no (laughs) And he's like, they're really fast. I was like, oh, sure, tell me more. It was literally, it was about like that. Quick, get me one. That's basically yeah. how I got Quick. into it. <laughs> yeah, went straight to sports bikes. And of course, that's, um, yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing for me. It was very much always sports bikes that were the thing. Yeah. That, that was what appealed to me. It was the, the ridiculous power outputs that you had from tiny engines in even 80s sports bikes. You know, it was, yeah, it was absolutely nuts. Loved it. Absolutely Amazing. loved it. It was all over it. So there was a journey then from sports bikes and college through to becoming what we now call adventure riders. So what happened between university and getting on the road to Africa? That trip kind of grew out of a a daft idea. I was I was initially going to do that solo and it had grown out of at the time I started thinking about it which would have been 2005 2006 something like that I had a, a good buddy who I done a few trips to Europe on sports bikes me on my TL1000 and him on his uh, SV650 so it looked like little and, little and large in every possible way <laughs> one of those trips I'd thought it would be really cool to to go just just hop over from go down to Spain but then hop over to Morocco just for a bit and then and then come back we needed a little bit more vacation time to do that length of journey and actually make it fun rather than just sit on the motorway the whole time and Chris basically sort of said well I just don't have the days of leave available to do it and I was like oh crap okay not to worry well this time we'll just go to Spain but I'll, I'll sit I'll, I'll think about it see what I can do and then I thought well if I'm gonna go to Morocco why wouldn't I do it on something more suitable, having no experience at all of riding off-road, but figuring that a TL1000S wasn't the right tool for the job. <laughs> I thought, you know, why wouldn't I take something more appropriate to explore Morocco? And then I thought, well, if I'm doing that, you know, take that loop from the south coast of the UK down to Morocco and back again. If you straighten that loop out and just keep going, you get to like Senegal, you get to Dakar, and then you could just put it on a boat back from there or something, couldn't you? Or fly it or something. Basically, this 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 trip just got completely out of hand. Initially, I was going to Morocco on a sports bike with a mate, and then before I knew it, I was thinking, wow, if I'm going to Dakar, <laughs> might as well go to Cape Town, might I? <laughs> might as well. It literally, it just spiraled out of control in my head in the, in the matter of... I don't know, a month or two. And then I started getting quite serious about it, started looking into it and thinking, yeah, you know what? This is perfectly possible. You know, people do this stuff. This is not, you know, it's it's unusual, but it's not difficult. Well, there's two, two questions there. What were you doing that gave you the time to do that trip? Question one. And, and question two, you say other people were doing it, but I'm assuming there wasn't so many people 
posting videos on YouTube and writing blogs and writing books about it. There are it. a few people out there writing blogs. And I, I, I remember finding some really, really rudimentary blogs of kind of long distance transcontinental trips when I was researching that and thinking, you know, how feasible is this? And, you know, I was aware of the likes of Ted Simon from when was he doing it? 70s. And obviously it kind of makes sense when you, you know, it's kind of my, my misguided approach to choosing a bike for the trip. Charlie and Ewan had made it look like you needed, I mean, obviously, obviously a film crew, obviously, you know, an office full of hot administrators in London to coordinate it all, <laughs> but definitely a massive motorbike. That's definitely the right way forward. So I couldn't afford a BMW, so I thought an Africa Twin. Yeah, there, there was enough information out there. You knew it could be done. It wasn't pie in the sky stuff. You just had to work out how to make it happen. I was in the very fortunate position of being able to take a sabbatical my flat was a complete building site so i couldn't sell it or rent it it had to just be left vacant whilst i went traveling but yeah i was in this ridiculously privileged position which is not that unusual in the in the uk to be in that privileged position to actually say well yeah it's a big compromise you were you're a self-employed engineer are you at this stage uh, no, at this I was an I was an employee. Yeah, I was I was by no means wealthy. <laughs> I was by no I was kind of young, single, fancy free. Yeah. Didn't have any commitments. I owned my flat but didn't owe an awful didn't owe a tremendous amount on it. It was a lot for me at the time, but it wasn't a it wasn't a ridiculous amount of money. And I had enough savings that I could afford to keep paying my mortgage whilst I was away. And I knew that once I was living in a tent in a dusty car park or by the side of the road or whatever, it wasn't going to be costing me much to live. Yeah. Once you're traveling, the traveling is not the expensive bit. It's actually keeping everything going at home. That's the expensive bit, actually. How soon did you agree to this, Ed, or did you take some talking into it? No, so around the time that the Dakar bit began to, began to happen, I think I was on holiday and I was stuck in, a, I suppose, the envious position of, of a well-paid job. But unfortunately, I was miserable, well, not miserable, they're just not, not what I wanted to do. For me, it was relatively, I say relatively easily, you know, once I didn't have any kind of, I wasn't going to say ties, but, if, you know, there was nothing really super that, that required my, you know, having to be around all of the time, if that makes sense. So when I, you know, basically just latched onto the idea, because I'd originally thought um, it's around the time that my, I think my dad had retired and he was sailing around and I thought it's now or never I should go and do that. And then, of course, Dan goes bikes. And I was like, Sailing what bikes? That's where I'm going next. <laughs> so completely pivoted. Thought, yeah, Africa. And again, as the same, I didn't, you know, a few influence. So once again, it's a bit like someone say, oh, motorbikes, you know, they're fast. And it's a bit like, you know, like Africa on bikes. How crazy would that be? And I was like, yeah. And then immediately I was just like, wanted to do it. And it was before, you know, so I, I had the same thing. I, I owned a house, but didn't, I was doing all right. So I could basically, if, and the same thing, you figured that it would, it would work out, wouldn't have to borrow too much and just... Also, uh, very, very soon early on with these trips, it's just like it dawned on me that there was never going to be a better time, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. every every job you get is bigger and harder and more more yeah. everything, more money, but more mm. more everything. So it was just I could just see that the next move would be ramping up. So it's just like, well, now is a great time. Yeah. Not, not married, not with the kids. Yeah. You know, there's no reason why I can't just. Get so lost, how, basically. How, how old were you again at this stage? <laughs> you just turned 30, hadn't you, as we set off? Yeah. Oh, so I right. turned 30 in the Gambia. I thought you were much younger for some reason. Was bike choice fairly straightforward at the time? I think Dan Well, it decided. was for Ed because I decided. I've got one of these and I like, sat on it. <laughs> anyway, get to that in a minute. So, and I, I did, yeah, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I'd not ridden off road ever. I was by no means an accomplished off road rider. I'd literally never, barely yet, by the time when I was planning to do the trip, I'd never ridden off road. And actually, I, I did buy a, a CRM 250. Yeah. Um, for not very much to try and practice to ride off-road a little bit um, with another mate over in Wales, which went disastrously badly, and I broke my foot. Quite a challenge, actually, breaking a, breaking a foot by throwing a CRM250 at it. I mean, they weigh as much as a crisp packet. I mean, I must have been trying quite hard. It was astonishingly bad riding off-road. I guess the choice of bike for me was kind of influenced by my motorcycling experience up to that point. So I wasn't used to a small, buzzy off-road bike. I mean, dare I say it, the, the big adventure tourers, they're two-wheeled SUVs and they always have been. You know, they're not they're not the right tool for going off-road, but they are a 
practical road bike that looks like you might do something interesting at the weekend in, yeah. in the same way as an SUV is not required to get the kids to school but it's it you know it looks funkier than a people carrier you know it's just it looks funkier than a McGann Scenic it looks like you yeah. might do something interesting in the week so that's what an Africa Twin is and it appeals to somebody or an Africa Twin was you know this is a my, mine was a 2002 I think mine was one of the last of the of the old shape Africa twins. I was an Etheridge then. Was that 98? Yeah. 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 And they are, they're great bikes. They are, they are good bikes, but they're not novice off-road bikes by any stretch of the imagination, but they are comfortable long distance tourers, which is realistically what they were sold as. It's just that they were comfortable long distance tourers that you could drag through Africa if you tried hard enough. And being fairly new to it, did that stop you from modifying them? Or did you do quite a lot to them? I think Enormous. we got it about right in many respects. I mean, we didn't we didn't obsess about performance pieces, so everything was kind. I mean, there were a few things which, like a few trinkets, if you like, but they actually turned out to be quite functional, like alien shocks and stuff, which actually, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So I think the second trip, there was a lot more obsession on my part about what what might be needed when it wasn't as it turned out spoiler alert i was going to um, say really for you it's more of an obsession of what you could get rid of wasn't it what you could yeah but i think i think the, the africa chip definitely because um uh, well the paint you can tell them about the paint jobs <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know, yeah we, we did we did prep those africa twins for the lynch of their lives in a in a very in a, well and, and not in a yeah, we didn't do badly as a first go, I would say. I mean, it, I mean there's, there's yeah. a strong argument that says that it's not the right bike for the job, but actually I'd kind of counter with that the right bike is whatever you want to ride, and we wanted to ride those, so it was the right bike. It just shapes the trip that you do. And so they had uh, really good quality luggage on it. It was hard luggage because that's what we thought was required. Yeah, we didn't know any better. We thought that security was a concern and you want to be able to lock your stuff up to have the hard luggage. We painted both bikes white so they wouldn't get hot in the sun. And <laughs> actually that worked pretty well. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds daft, but it worked pretty well. I was going to say, was this a spray job or yeah. you, brush, you didn't brush paint? No, 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 spray job in spray, my garage. So we, I had, a, I had a, um, a really cheap spray gun and a little diaphragm compressor and we just i bought so my mine had been uh, mine mine was a beautiful bargain <laughs> bike my mine was an absolute peach mine because and i it was it was an ebay bargain because the the guy had, had set it to, to the auction to end at like you know 10 30 a.m on a tuesday you know that <laughs> absolute peak bidding time so i got it for an absolute song it's funny though you say you say the white paint thing we've had loads of people that have come on and got you know talked about their trips to hot places and i'm just kind of at, trying to add up the number of people that have painted their bikes white, white. is it two is it, is it two of us none well we're the first two are we yeah, yeah. there we go so um doesn't mean <laughs> we're wrong though, does it Austin does a white bike doesn't he <laughs> and, gen- and genuinely we, we knew this would work but yeah your stuff in white panniers it keeps a lot cooler than black panniers it yeah. really really does it makes a massive difference anywho but the in this but my, my bike been a bargain i remember being absolutely bowled over the first time i contacted the seller after i won this auction at you know 10 30 a.m on a tuesday i was like you know can i come pick up at the weekend he's like yeah which, which day and i was like oh uh, sunday probably I'll, I'll see when i can get a, a mate to give me a lift up and uh, it was like, oh, well, it can't be too early because um, I have to wait till I'm back from church. And I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> Just perfect. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I'd, 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 bought this, I'd bought this bike for a, a, a very keen price from a very, very lovely bloke. And yeah. it, was a, it was a really, really nice bike. It was really nice. So I didn't paint that white. I bought a second-hand, very tatty tank and side uh, panels and, uh, right, and so right. on and painted those white and kept the immaculate red, white and blue stuff for, yeah. for when I got back to sell it. Tell us about the route you took through Africa or through Europe and into Africa. It was kind of maximising the riding. And did you plan it or did you just kind of do it? It was roughly planned, wasn't it? We had a list of countries. Yeah. What were you using for navigation? Did you, did you have sat-navs at the time? We did. We we had little little handhelds, but we had ram mount cradles for them on the bars. We had Garmin E-Trex GPSs, which are kind of, they're, they're for hiking, basically. Yeah. Um, really robust little units. Mine still works, actually. Mine still works, um, yeah, and they were really, they were yeah really really robust little thing. But they they pretty much just tell you where you are and you can sort of place yourself on a map, right? They actually were capable of routing. Now once you once you get to the kind of less developed parts of Africa, once you once you're far enough south, 
you can just point a GPS in a direction and you can just follow the road that is going in that direction. You know you're on the road because it is the road. It's fine. <laughs> you're not you're not on the other road that goes in a slightly different way. You're on the road. So you yeah. know you know again, you know you're going the right way. So that's that's fine. We bought the wrong paper maps, the Michelin. Michelin do Send those amazing <laughs> maps. They, yeah. they, you know, the whole of Africa is on three sheets. And yeah. those, paper, those Michelin paper maps are amazing. They're produced by the Empire. Why wouldn't they be amazing maps? <laughs> well, the GPS became more of a kind of like a logging thing and sharing coordinates and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, because, like you say, you've only got one red road on the Michelin map, and that's kind of the one that you followed a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite right. I mean, yeah. Again, that, that was that was the nature of that trip was that yeah. because of the because of the bikes we were on. It, they weren't the right bikes for going off on nadry little trails and exploring miles away, miles miles away from where you needed to need to be getting to. Yeah, you know, they didn't they didn't suffer. You started trying to try to drag them through the muddy bits. They were okay, but they they weren't ideally suited to that. So you were basically following the more major routes. That's what you were doing, and the majorness of those routes just varies depending on exactly where you are. But we did, did send a lot of stuff home, didn't we? Like regularly. Just share, we shared stuff <laughs> in Gibraltar, for example. Oh, yeah. I think that's a good hallmark of the first trip is we, we, we were learning quite quickly. Well, did you have yeah. a little shakedown trip before you actually left with everything you were going to take? Didn't we go in after Yorkshire or something? We did. We went, we went to Driffield, didn't we? Yeah. We <laughs> yeah we the closest thing you could find to Stayed yes. with the girlfriend's Soweto. family. Because, uh, yeah, the horses yeah. there are a bit like zebras. So, yeah, yeah good shakedown that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we had that shakedown. Um, and I think you discovered that everything worked so well that you slept in the house. I checked it first, set it up, yep. and then went to yep. the house. <laughs> what stuff were you sending back then from Gibraltar? Waterproofs, tapes, because of course we were shooting on mini DV, weren't we? You made a film. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were all their webinars. There are 11 webinars on YouTube under B2C 2007, I think it is. No, this would have been useful research. <laughs> <It'll>, <laughs> they sake. genuinely are pretty Fire good. Fire the research. Yeah. little videos are good. B2C? B2C 2007, is it? Yeah, exactly. Actually, I didn't even know about this. They don't bang on about this kind of thing. They're not great self-publicists. So, so is the two a, a number two? On YouTube, and it's... I'm not finding yeah. anything on uh, B2C. B2C2007, yeah. I think it was, wasn't it? Right. B. What? This is what we C have to search for to find the film. We have to use secret code. Yeah. Oh, here we go. What's mm. what's the what's the quality like? And I don't. Yeah, I mean, right. in terms of, does it look like eight millimeters SD, these days? Isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it is SD. I mean, what's the quality SD. like? Well, it, the trip was in 2007. God. It's not terrible. It's, it's not terrible. It's not terrible, but it's, that, it's that not great either. Just seeing you pulling off. From a garage on you're driving on the right hand side of the road, so you must be in four eighty p. And there might be the one going down through France if we're wearing water. Yeah, you're in four eight. Yeah, four eighty p. Four eighty p. Wow. You can remember such a thing. It's it's not really optimised for Google search. Let's put it that way. So you you decided to go down the dangerous west side. The interesting, the interesting, the interesting side of Africa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was that the decision straight? To, was, that, was that led by the fact that you were going into Morocco, so you're already on the west? You may as well carry on in that direction, or were you looking for the more machine gun ridden route? There was an elegance, just kind of you know arriving in the kind of northwest corner of Africa and kind of following down the west side. There was an elegance to that. It seemed like it would be a more interesting trip, and that's what shapes so many of these journeys. It's it's brand it and say you're going from, you know, Sussex, you know, you're going from Brighton to Cape Town because, you know, that's that's the start and the finish. But if you wanted to get from Brighton to Cape Town, you would start by driving to Heathrow. So, you know, there's there's no logic to to setting off on a motorbike just to follow that journey. It's all about an interesting journey and it seemed more interesting to go down the west side than the rather more touristy eastern side. And and the thing is the route the route that you'd take now would be rather different. I mean, there are all sorts of considerations that we had at the time that are completely different now. In fact, we did slightly change our plans in Niger, I think, because um, we had plans to do a bit more, bit more exploring in Niger, and then things were starting to kick off, and it was like, well, actually, let's not do that. That doesn't feel like a good idea right now. Now we're here. That doesn't feel like a good thing to do. You know, the route that we took through Nigeria had been planned to kind of avoid, kind of scant justification, really, but you know, to to avoid the area down in the south around Lagos, where 
there are or were abductions and things, mostly of oil company employees who'd be held for ransom to be paid off by their employers. So we weren't really at risk of that, but we were like, well, why would we go through that bit? So we'll go through the north instead. Now, of course, that's the, well, more recently, I'm not, to be honest, I've not been keeping that close now on it lately, but more recently, that's very much the part of Nigeria that you'd be like, oh, yeah, let's steer clear of the Boko Haram lot. Let's, we could just keep an eye on what was going on and just, you know, pick our way through. Where were you when the riding first got a little bit tricky? Well, genuinely tricky or that yeah. stumped us at the time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well the, first, the first place that it threatened to, of course, is the border of um, uh, Western Sahara and, and Mauritania. But actually yeah. it's not. But that it's was not. kind of, yeah, everyone, yeah. that was that first thing that people were aiming for. Really, it's just a load of sand. The first bit that we had to buck our ideas up, I think, was in Mauritania, wasn't it? Mm. When we, yes. did our, we did our first kind of corrugated piece we just got it wrong on the way out to Wadan. We got it wrong. We were going too slowly. And it's that classic thing of the one thing you need to do is go faster, but it doesn't cross your mind until, <laughs> until you try it. Um, on the way back, we went a lot faster and it was fine. But I think the first bit that really was challenging was probably Cameroon, wasn't it? So Burkina Faso, when we were going to the border, the route that we chose on the map, there was a lot of sand oh, yeah, through there. there was, wasn't there? There was. And we were just out in very random places trying to follow the road. And it was just sort of these sandy yeah, little Vs where there's not even a proper kind of... And we were yeah. on the big bikes, obviously. And that's probably the first time I ripped off one of these lovely spotless metal meal panniers were you ever thinking we've bitten off more than we can chew or was it all quite ultimately manageable actually on that one i don't think we were and actually i think well what's interesting for me in the africa one the nature of that route so everyone talks about the eastern side being more touristy we were very fortunate i think in that we bumped into a lot of other bikers going the same way from from all over europe yeah there, there were people from all over europe we bumped into one chat from the us there were the people we mostly uh, spent time with were from the uk or south africa but there were people on a mixture of bikes we didn't really have the option of kind of blasting through the the sandier bits or the muddier bits because our bikes just weren't suitable for that but thankfully the people on smaller bikes were reasonably patient so that all that was all okay and we were able to travel together for for fairly large sections of that actually i mean it should come as no surprise to anyone that actually you set off on a trip like this the people you meet are people who are worth meeting you know you meet really nice people who you have an affinity for because you know you're you're doing something similar were you fairly well traveled before this no, say? not really. I wouldn't say I was. Right, you Ed? Um, no, not not particularly. I mean, I I not to exotic. No, not particularly. No. Always outside the UK to places, but just holiday destinations. Not yeah. really anything. Yeah, I, mean, so I think I think the most exotic place I've been to. I, mean, I, I had, I had um, been lucky enough to travel to Hong Kong for work. I'd done climatic testing in kind of hot climate and cold climate. So I'd been to one, I'd been, I I guess I had been to some unusual places in terms of traveling to far flung exotic places off my own bat. No, the Africa trip was the first. You did get into some tricky situations, didn't you? But overall, more or less tricky than you imagined it would be. I think it was probably less tricky than I initially thought it was going to be. And I think really, there's no doubt that there's a huge element of luck. I'm, I think in a couple of, in a, there were a couple of occasions on the Africa trip where we were lucky. Things could have panned out differently. That's You can say that about anything. I mean, you can say that about your commute to work. Things can pan out differently, can't they? But I think we learned, again, as, well, as Ed was saying earlier, you kind of learn quite quickly at the beginning of the trip. And we got quite good at playing the games with the various policemen who were trying to scam you. And then we were able to apply pretty similar tactics when we came across people who, well, maybe less professional. Yeah, we, we we were certainly lucky, but I think at no point did did it really feel like we'd you know really misjudged it and bitten off more than we could chew. There was one machine gun incident, wasn't there? That was Congo, wasn't it? And actually, I think there was potentially more than one. Uh, the man we set out, sent out for the wreck, he didn't spot the weaponry the second time. You're going to have to tell us these stories in detail now. The one that Noel's referring to is the one in Congo. We, there were three of us travelling together by this stage. We came round a corner... Me at the front, then Ed, then Chris. Was it? Was that the order we were in? Something like that. So uh, we came, came round a corner in the road. There was just a bunch of blokes stood across the road, kind of carrying uh, machetes, and one bloke off to the side with an AK-47, as I recall. You figure that you've got no option but to stop. And it's only after we'd stopped, I think, that I, I spotted the guys 
further along the road in front of us who had you know planks of wood with nails driven through them who you know they would sort of hurl those under your wheels if you set off before before they wanted you to so we stopped well they they, they came and talked to me first because i was at the front i took the same approach that we'd taken with all the police by this stage and the approach that we'd learned to take cheery um, cheery englishman well, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, be very yeah, polite in French to begin with, you know, and talk to them very politely in French, you know, in schoolboy French to begin with. And then as soon as they start asking for money, switch to English and explain that you haven't got a clue what they're talking about and, and you've no idea why you owe them any money. It's a complex situation when you're dealing with underpaid police in developing countries. And, you know, from my, from my side, there's no moral judgment about people trying to scam top foreigners coming through because you know any westerner traveling through a developing country is unthinkably wealthy and so you know it's it's completely reasonable you just have to accept that these guys with machetes and, and a machine gun they were they were in police uniforms these were civvies these right. were civvies but the approach we took was the same just start out being terribly polite in french and and trying to you know converse them converse with them in french and then once they started you know asking for things like well you know no we don't have anything um, to give you we don't you know no we, we don't you any money there's no no we both obviously we're on motorbikes we're not carrying much are we we're not big rich people in in expensive cars you know we're not we're not we haven't got that much stuff we're only on motorbikes look i mean that obviously they're massive motorbikes enormous motorbikes but we're only motorbikes yeah they're hand painted for goodness they're hand, hand painted in a in a garage in Sussex. yeah ruined <laughs> ruined with a really kind of dappled hammerite paint job in a garage in right. at this point they're not threatening you then they're just no and th- and this is the thing and I, and this is this is this i think is where you've you're forced to conclude that we were lucky in that the whole time this is going on you're just trying to read the situation aren't you you're just trying to to think this could get ugly do they want it to and you're just trying to read that situation or actually do they really just want to see if they can get something out of you easily and then if they can't just let just you know just get on with your day at adventure solos events are adventures designed specifically for people in their 30s 40s and 50s to book onto by themselves to make new friends and to enjoy group adventures. The theory behind Adventure Solos is that it's easier to make new friends as a child, but it takes more effort as an adult. That's exactly where Adventure Solos come in. Wholesome events where you enjoy plenty of laughs, fresh air, exercise, shared meals, a glass of wine or two, and awesome new people to make real connections. There are a variety of weekend and week-long adventures, from day hikes or wild camping for beginners, to canoe trips across Scotland. As a listener of the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast, you can use the discount code TAMP5, T-A-M-P-5, to get a 5% discount code on any adventures you book. What's more, as a TAMP listener, you can also join a meet and greet day hike event for free. Visit adventuresolos.com forward slash T-A-M-P to find out more. That's a free day hike event when you subscribe to the Adventure Solos mailing list at adventuresolos.com forward slash TAMP, T-A-M-P. Adventure Solos, book on by yourself, make new friends, enjoy group adventures. Did you leave your helmet on? Were you sort of still ready yeah. for that quick yeah, getaway? Yeah, first gear clutch in, yeah. And you're not wearing intercom, so like the guy at the back doesn't really know what's going on at the front. We didn't have, have um, radios on the trip. We actually did, but we didn't uh, have them. We weren't using no, them. No, we used them less towards the end, really. Um, but so, just because you get into the rhythm of things and then, you know, you don't really need it so much. But we did, you know, at the time, I suppose, back in 2007, we had our little radios. So what really happened was you were talking to each other and going, right, leg it and we'll just leave Chris here. <laughs> Well, uh, sadly not. And, and this is the thing: the whole the whole time, until I'd spotted the planks with the nails through them, I was I, I I was kind of with half an ear, yeah, trying to hear whether the other guys had turned their engines off. I'd pulled over first gear clutch in. I hadn't keyed off because I was thinking, you know, okay, they've got machetes, but they're right in front of me. If I were to gas it now, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to run that quick. <laughs> but I had no idea whether Chris and Ed had keyed off, and if they had. That would be a really, really, really <laughs> hard. It would just be hard to explain later on, wouldn't it? Well, I think, I think it would make families. this podcast really awkward. Um, You're at the back, Ed, are you, presumably? Oh, you were a long way back from, from the Yeah, I, I think uh, Dan's describing a pattern as well of kind of how we were sort of travelling around. So, uh, But I think there was there was often that, that maybe that slight moment of communication kind of being cut 
between us when certain things happened. And I think, yeah, in this case, it was. Um, I see. I seem to remember we managed to convince them that we weren't wealthy, worth wealth, wealthy, and like look at our little boxes. And then they end up asking for some food. I think at the end mm, of it, yeah, they so did. It, it, sort of, it, it went away quite quickly. Yeah, um, it did. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And you very quick. And you're still in touch to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. A story. Story. That's a lovely heartwarming yeah, yeah. story. Yeah. So I, initially they were just talking to me at the front, but then quite quickly they dispersed down the group and then started talking to you and Chris at the same time, I think. And it got to the point where I was talking to one chap at the front and the conversation had, I'd, you know, I'd kind of steered it round to, you know, what's, what's the road like up ahead? You know, is it dirt road like this or is it, you know, is it, is it really got potholes and that or, you know, what's it like? Yeah. Yeah. He was like, yeah, it's quite a, quite a good road. I was like, all right. Yeah. Well, can we go then? He's like, <laughs> yeah. It literally, that that is how that is yeah. how that oh, how that ended. Yeah, police negotiator. I think I'd have just said, does this is this road carry on really like this towards the next airport, so I can just fly straight home? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so well, that, that was that was that was your worst moment, was it, on the whole trip in terms of hassle and and threat? It was the one that we knew about. So I think the other one that I'm thinking of was I think was that also Congo, the one which. Uh, Chris Bangert had warned us about in advance. Do you remember the one I mean, Ed? There was another bit where a road had been deliberately blocked with a truck and there was a bit of a queue of traffic. And I think Christoph Bangert, who we had met further north, and he he was a lovely bloke. Really, really nice bloke. He was a a, a German chap and a, and a Land Rover Defender. Now, I think, is a photographer for the New for the New York Times. Had been, you know, he'd been a war photographer. Really talented chap. But he was ahead of us at this stage, and we were kind of keeping in touch via email. You know, when when we were going to internet cafes to upload a bit to the blog or whatever, we'd exchange emails with other people who we'd been travelling with earlier. And Christoph had, had kind of told us about this bit, and he'd explained that I think he'd had to pay a bribe at this bit. And I think when we got to it. I think the bone man went off on because the bone man was on a little little lightweight bike. He was on a CCM, little CCM 404. So he went off to recce a route. But I think he went off on foot, didn't he? Because they they weren't happy about the idea of us taking bikes anywhere and jumping the queue because they were trying to get people to to bribe them to let them through. And he went off and he was like, "Oh, there's a there's a road round there. Be fine." So we're like. Oh, well, right you are then, Chris. Off we go. And then as we followed this little route round, we kind of go round the hut with grenades hanging off it, people sharpening knives in it and stuff like that. Like, what did you, did you not spot that? <laughs> we so. were too quick. We came around the corner and the guy couldn't get a little barrier, makeshift barrier up in time. So we ended up mm. just blasting past him and he was shouting and off we drove. Yeah. <laughs> the sort yeah. of exceptionalism, which is a, a, a tightrope, really, or was yeah. certainly <laughs> between you know, how much trouble you'll be in if you stop versus, you know, how unofficial is it? I suppose. Yeah, exactly. How unofficial yeah. is this? Yeah. Yeah. And I think and I think we had a good idea with. that was pretty unofficial. But I, f- I feel bad making you focus perhaps on these two negative stories because I'm imagining for the 99.9% of the rest of the time it was just wonderful smiley faces and and farmer hospitality than you'd ever find. It in really Northern was. Europe. It was smiley yeah. faces and cracked rims and DHL aid parcels in airports. And when I'm talking about the trip to people, I don't talk about that because yeah. that's not what the trip's like. You know, if you yeah. if you tell people that story and nothing else, it gives a really weird idea. It's like, yeah. wow, you did that for 17,000 miles, did you? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could barely get to Dover. And there was bandits. <laughs> that's not what the world's like. You know, the no. world is full of really nice people. And actually, if you travel it by motorbike full of really surprised people who've got no idea why you're doing what you're doing they just don't get it <laughs> they're just like who are these mad white people what are, they, what are they doing and it's very difficult to explain that because what yeah. you're doing is something immensely privileged and really rather special so what was a, a typical day like then i know it's very difficult over seventeen thousand miles but presumably you weren't camping very much the accommodation was cheap where you could find it or we were camping everywhere by choice mostly yeah and a lot of auberges so we were sort of camping in buildings or around them more than yeah. rough camping. Yes. we found early yeah. on with rough camping i mean like we were expecting to almost more like a sort of a mongolia experience which you know obviously in a yeah. later trip but actually you know we would joke that you would stop the bike for like minutes and someone would appear it yes. just was almost unavoidable at any wherever you were middle of nowhere stop the bike someone pops their head up yeah you'd, you'd literally um, literally stop the bike for a, for a drink for a swig of water and you'd be like, oh isn't this and this peaceful who are they the continent is full of friendly and curious people 
Were you carrying tents then the whole way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and in fairness, I mean, I, by preference, useful. we were mostly staying in the tents. You know, so yeah. I mean, Ed's right. Uh, you know, he's characterised it exactly right. We were, we were there were an awful lot of auberges that you'd stay at, but we would generally be choosing to camp outside the auberge and you know use the facilities of the auberge rather than stay in the auberge because our tents were cleaner for the most part. We had a routine too, like take yeah, the, exactly. the bike, set it up. You know what it's like. You've got that kind of daily pack it up, put on the yeah, bike, and take actually, it off again, when, unpack it. Yeah, you never you, and you, you, if you're if you're camping next to your bike, you're camping next to all your stuff. Whereas if you're staying inside the building, you've got to take all the stuff you need and then go back for the stuff you forgot and then go back for the stuff that you still forgot. And it's just which is three and... trips with a back, you know, with a pack yeah. and then two hard panniers, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, two again, hard panniers with really sticky outy sharp sharp kind of <laughs> aluminium. Yeah, aluminium. Yeah, the, <laughs> designed to tear into human flesh. I'm thinking that the auberges I've stayed at, presumably there's like a croissant breakfast made available with bowls of steaming coffee. I'd imagine that's the way it works in Africa too, right? Steaming something. There are a lot of these places that were food available. We did buy some food from some of these places, but we cooked a lot for ourselves. We just bought supplies and uh, bought, not brought. We didn't <laughs> We didn't set off from home with all the food we needed for four months. Some people do. We didn't. So were the bikes utterly reliable? Mine was, yeah. Mine wasn't, yeah. actually. I, I think... No, yours, it, yeah, yours kind yeah, of um, I, got a passenger, didn't it? Well, it had a passenger, but before then, <laughs> we had some smoke. When we were crossing into um, to Senegal, you spotted some smoke, I think. It was on the over on the over on something like a um, valve stem seal or something yeah. like that. It was, it was leaking, so there's a bit of oil. So that immediately, just what you want to hear is you're yeah. going into the more, you know, more interesting Africa, if you like, from the more, you know, sedate Africa, if you like, of a touristy bit. But that seemed to fix itself, so that went away. But what did happen then is I took a spare regulator rectifier with me, and that, the bike ate that around Mali, somewhere in Mali, I think yeah. it was. We had a spare between two, obviously, right. so yeah. I used that one up. And then that one lasted to Namibia, um, and then it died in Namibia, and we've tracked it. I put a car battery on the back shelf with some cables well, that a mechanic had made up and some kind of macgyver reg wreck first oh that's right yeah we did, we did around try some other yeah, random off reg like wreck. a off like a dirt bike or something like another honda like an rm yeah. i can't remember what it was something else we managed to um, make it. and it worked for a bit didn't it i think that worked yeah maybe 15 20 minutes and then yeah and then really it was didn't time to time to strap a car battery on the back and yeah. buy a mains charger just run at total loss. <laughs> yeah, so run at total loss all the way to South Africa. Yeah. Maybe in South Africa, Amazing. basically. Yeah. So he's no stranger to electric range anxiety, is Ed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like cutting edge. My first ever a road bike converted into a scra- schoolboy scrambler ran like that as well. We just had a, a probably even a six volt battery back then, and you just used to charge it before you, before you went to ride the bike. I left it actually outside the uh, the thing in South Africa. I just left it on a wall. <laughs> And flew oh, back. The airport, wasn't it? <laughs> just leave that at the airport. But they wouldn't let me take a, like a loose what, battery hand luggage, with it. No. Did you get to Cape Town on time? Yeah, we were early. And actually, we, we'd kind of simplified the route a little bit. Ed's bike had had enough. It wanted to go home, didn't it? So I think we we had planned kind of notionally that we'd head over into Botswana a bit and have a yeah. you know, have a have a bit of a kind of more bit more wildlifey experience. There was there was one bit in Namibia. So yeah, okay. So we we, fo- we focused on Congolese bandits, which you know is great. That's a crowd pleaser, isn't it? But actually, I think my standout memory of of the trip was in Namibia. You guys, you've just I've just reminded me of, we were kind of trying to do some wildlife a bit. So in Namibia, we did go to a, a kind of private at Game Reserve just on the edge of Atosha and it was the wrong time of year to see much in the way of um, of wildlife because it was a wet season then there was water everywhere so there's no point in trying to go to the water holes to find the exotic animals because they were just getting they were just drinking wherever but as we were leaving there I mean, we'd had a, we'd had a good time we'd had we'd had a nice nice drive in a uh, safari truck you know for a for half a day or whatever as we were leaving there the next day it was quite a long access road to this private game reserve well groomed dirt track and as you entered that on the way in there were signs everywhere saying you know maximum speed 25 kph you're like seriously don't know i can easily do this faster than that so you know so obviously you stand on the pegs and gas it and and you you know you 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 arrive in a cloud of dust at the kind of the reception of the game lodge and then as we were leaving the following day we were riding out of this place there was a herd of zebra kind of running alongside us as we were riding along this truck along this track we kind of just backed off a little bit and this herd of zebra kind of just kind of flying in formation kind of ran from being alongside the track on one side to across the track in front of us as we're still riding along behind them and then they disappear off to the left and it was that's a memory from that trip. Yeah. You know, that's something that I will never forget. And okay, I won't forget your bandits either, but you know, the zebra, you know, let's focus on the zebra. 
Um, <laughs> that was magic. That yeah. was magical. It really was. Yeah, I bet. It would have been so easy then to have just put some zebra stripes on those white bikes, wouldn't it? It would. What a missed yeah. opportunity. We could just blend it in <laughs> and just lived, lived as zebra. Were there any places or countries that, that really stood out that you might want to go back to take your children or second honeymoon? A lot of the places that you have really great memories from are the places that realistically you're probably not going to head back to. I mean, I, I think I'm very fond of our time in Cameroon. I think we had an amazing time in Cameroon. I really yeah, enjoyed it. It was, a challenge. it, was, it was challenging roads. It was wonderful people. Yaoundé was a, was a, 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 a fantastic, vibrant city. It was That was really cool. But am I going to take my wife and, wife and one and a half kids to Yaoundé? No, probably not. And would I go back to South Africa? Yes. I mean, South Africa is a stunning place. Would I go back? Yes. Would I, would I drag the family there by road? Probably not. I wouldn't rule out the idea of further overlanding, but probably probably not motorcycle overlanding for me. And the bikes were always going to come back. You were always going to... Yeah. Well, they were on a car night. They had to. Yeah. They were on a ship. No. So they, they, they flew back. Did you pre-book that then, presumably? You had a time frame? No, no, no. No, no. no, no. Sorted that when we got there. It was That was actually reason... I mean, Oh, the plan, the the idea was so slick. It didn't quite work out that way. But the plan had basically been to palletise the bikes and get them sorted with the freight forwarder for them to fly to Heathrow on the same flight as we would be on. And then you'd just land at Heathrow, get yourself, get yourself through, and then take a cab round to the freight village, go and release your bike and reassemble it in the car park and ride it home. That was the dream. Yeah, heroic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah ride it home for the win. Certainly for mine, the freight forwarders had messed up the uh, dangerous goods declaration. So my bike was refused by Virgin Atlantic for the flight home. So I basically, from the airport, when I got this text message from the freight forwarder saying, oh, really sorry, your bike's not going to be on that flight. Um, we'll get it sorted for tomorrow. I was like, great. Uh, um, I'm now going to land in Heathrow with no means of getting home. So There are, there are um, trains and stuff. What? Yeah, you've got the train <laughs> or a bus. Taxi. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could probably walk to fucking Brighton for there. What? Seriously? <laughs> no, so I, uh, no, I, I, I went one better than that. I phoned my dad. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was quite lucky though because just from a, the romanticism of it I did arrive back in Heathrow and go round because I was with the other Chris at the time and go mm. round get the bike and get on it and ride it home so it had that yeah. it, for, for me it did it worked out for it, work. it did work out that time um, but yeah for me and the bone man it didn't I didn't realise how much would be involved when you got back to Heathrow to actually get your bike out I just thought yeah someone go and find it in the warehouse and no it's like <laughs> all the customs and the signing off the documents and everything it's like oh no you need to go to like Basingstoke or somewhere I was like what it could have gone terribly wrong charged the bike up and headed off <laughs> How did you find the adjustment then back into civilian life after all this? I didn't like it, actually. <laughs> I, I made the mistake of giving myself too much time off between getting back from the trip and going back to work. And that was not a good move. I like, should. Like weeks or how long? Yeah, I, I think I gave myself a month or something daft because oh, I'd, I'd taken a six month sabbatical. We'd taken, I think, four and a half months to get down there. And then I'd stayed out there for a bit longer. I think basically, yeah, that was it. I mean, we'd, we'd got there quite quickly. We got there a little bit quicker than planned because we hadn't done the Botswana bit. And we would just, we'd just made slightly quicker progress than we thought we might, I think. My folks had actually booked themselves to come on holiday out to Cape Town. And, and they, they'd sort of told me they were going to do this. And I said, well, okay, don't book for when we're planning to be there because if we're not there then, that'll be that will suck. Yeah, so, yeah. so book for a book for a bit later. Book for a couple of weeks later, and we were a couple of weeks earlier. So I ended up hanging around in South Africa for a month. That's when we came home separately. Right. I ended up hanging yeah. around in South Africa for a month, waiting for my folks to turn up, which was awesome. I just blasted yeah. around South Africa and have yeah, just like a normal tourist, but with a motorbike. Um, had a week's holiday with my folks, and they flew home, and then I sorted out flying my bike back. But then I think after that, I still had like a month of my sabbatical left, and I think I just used it. I think I just stayed off work until I needed to be back, and I I, I should. <laughs> Done that. I should have gone back to work. You're in Africa at this for a month, or you're at home for a month? Uh, well, I, so I was in Africa for a month. I was in South Africa for a month. Yeah. Then I had a week's holiday with my folks. So that was then, all brilliant. So you know, a, month. a month of being like a, a backpacker with a motorbike in yeah. in South Africa was magic. I mean, that was yeah, a, you know, that's a great place to be. Actually, yeah. you know, go and be a tourist in in South Africa for a month. That's a great place to go and do it. So yeah. I did. And then I had a had a week's holiday with my folks. They flew back, and a few days later, I flew back. And then a month after that. 
I'd, I'd arranged I was going to go back to work. And I should have gone back to work sooner than that because I've basically spent most of that month thinking, huh, this isn't much fun. You know, this yeah. isn't as much fun as blasting. Yeah, it's quite Africa depressing getting back. It to is. It it's is. quite depressing it's... in a way land, uh, arriving in South Africa, just but especially the, the difference we found as we crossed from Namibia into South Africa. Well, maybe Angola, actually. Sorry, Angola, Angola to Namibia. Namibia I think was it was like going from what you imagine Africa to be like yeah. to what it really is like. Yeah. And yeah. it's in actual fact, it's so developed that it was a bit mm. like, well, the trip felt yeah. a bit over as you crossed that border. Because yeah. you saw like supermarkets and uh, wimpies and yeah. restaurants and all the rest of it. And I was like, oh, that was that. I mean, for, the rest of us, for the rest of us, that's how it feels coming out of deserted France on a bike trip into yeah. southern oh, right. England. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. terrible. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's, just, it's almost Normality. as big a contrast. One of the things I have banged on about, so I haven't banged on about the bandits, though you have asked us to, but one of the things I have banged on when people ask about the trip, you know, what, what's really good about doing a trip like this? And we always said that you know, you've kind of traveled to these places, really far-flung places, and you've, you've got like an audit trail all the way from your front door and you've watched the world change to where you are now. So you've set off from your house, you've ridden from there to where you are now, and the world has gradually changed to whatever it is you're experiencing now. And it's a, that is a, that's a magic feeling actually. And you don't get that, you know, so since then I've, you know, I've, I've gone to Nepal, I've had a holiday in Nepal, and that felt really weird because you land in Kathmandu and you're like, yeah. whoa, yeah. That, it's just like that. Yeah, you know, you get off the plane and suddenly you're in the developing world. Yeah. And that's a very different experience from traveling there over land. It's a very, yeah. very different thing. Hey, listen, we have been recording for an hour and a quarter and we've only done one trip. We have to come back. That's, that's not gone well, has it? I think it's gone brilliantly, <laughs> which is why I'd like to invite you back for part two. Yeah, let's do that. And do the Russia trip. And maybe maybe let Ed say something at some point. <laughs> I, well, I think that's a really good idea. I think you should, because that, 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 one, that one's his trip. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Do you, I mean, do you, is it funny talking about it again? Do you think about no, it? No, you always it... do this. We, we stop the fucking podcast <laughs> and you carry on asking fucking questions. <laughs> We've just said we'll come back next week. Yeah, 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 but uh, uh, guys, 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 guys. Ah, man, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed recording it two massive characters and they're going to be back next week or maybe in two weeks time talk about their trip through Siberia. We actually recorded it last night. It's even better. Fantastic stuff. One more request, please. Keep spreading the podcast amongst your, your biking friends. That would be much appreciated. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really appreciate what we do, you could consider supporting us on Patreon or buy us a coffee. Links are available on our website, which is tampodcast.com, tampodcast.com, where we also have a limited selection of branded stuff. But either way, please keep listening and spreading the word. See you next time.